there. It's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, May 10th, 2018. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me. How's your lawn cutting going? Are you still enjoying riding around on your on your lawnmower? Two straight podcasts start off so <laughs> some lawn maintenance. I'm uh I'm doing just fine. My lawn's doing just fine and uh enjoying enjoying this May here. You know, the news does not slow to a complete grinding halt. We do find ourselves with stuff to talk about here, Parrish, uh in the uh early to middle parts of May. And it's not even necessarily all draft related stuff, you know. Like we're still waiting on the combine, that'll be next week, and yet still college hoops has uh provided us with some interesting things to gab about. Yeah, there's been a, a couple of uh, recruiting developments over the past week that we'll get into. Um, there's been an interesting hire made by an Atlantic 10 school. We'll get into that. But I wanted to start um, with a column that Condoleezza Rice wrote for USA Today. It published uh, late on Wednesday. And essentially, um, it seems like her purpose was to just clarify that she does, in fact, believe that student athletes should be able to profit off of their name and likeness and that the commission on college basketball, which she heads, um, is, is recommending that, uh, to the NCAA. She said it's incomprehensible. That's her word, not mine, that, um, that student athletes are not allowed to profit off name and likeness. And it's also, um, you know, it, 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 there's contradictions within the NCAA's guidelines because they're giving waivers to certain people and then saying people over here aren't allowed to do this. And she says it's just a total mess and that it does need to be addressed, but that um, they're waiting on the courts to provide legal parameters. And so I, I guess – and Christine Brennan from USA also interviewed. So there were two items, uh, Condoleezza Rice's own column that she penned and then a story that Christine Brennan wrote where after, after interviewing Condoleezza Rice on uh, Wednesday, presumably Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon. And I guess where I would start is – and this question wasn't asked by Christine, I, or at least she didn't relay the answer to it. Why do you have to wait on the courts to uh, – you know, to rule or to set legal parameters for you when you could just, if you're the NCAA and you want to allow student athletes to profit off of their name and likeness, like you could, you could do that. I, I don't understand why you have to wait on the courts unless you're just using that as an excuse to kick it down the road uh, a bit. Do you have an answer for why the NCAA, why Condoleezza Rice believes that the NCAA needs or must wait on the courts to set legal parameters. Parrish, my reading on the situation is that Condi Rice was operating this commission somewhat independently. I mean, it was put in place by Emmert, and obviously the members of the commission were paid by the NCAA for the you know the NCAA basically telling them come up with a plan to help us fix our own uh, situation here. Uh, but within those communication lines, uh, I think that Condoleezza Rice was very aware of the fact that there's ongoing litigation about some of some of the things that have ailed the NCAA over the past, uh, you know, five, six, seven decades. And because of that, being part of her informational backdrop in toward building this whole commission, I think that's why she had the approach that she did. Plus. She comes from a bureaucratic background in general, and while the points you make, I think, are one, true, and two, valid, um, this whole thing has uh, 
there's a there's a level of formality with this that maybe has even uh, suffocated the message to a certain degree more than it than it should have been to begin with. But I think because of who Condoleezza Rice is and the type of business she's done and the way that she has become uh, so successful throughout her life, I think that is why we've arrived at the position that where we are at right now. You shouldn't be having to wait for a uh, a court to decide. Um, how the rules of amateurism should or should not work for if you're on a commission to make these sort of advisements. But I think because they are wanting to work within a certain timeline and within certain parameters, that is why she took the approach she did. And it's why she received some blowback for what she said uh, to, to Christine Brennan in the USA Today, even though uh, if you watched her her statement um, two weeks ago, she even said that the uh, the player from Notre Dame who went on Dancing with the Stars, you know, she even mentioned in that speech as she was making her comments, um, Arike, uh, forgive me, I can't remember the player's last name, um, but basically said she has every right to be able to compete on Dancing with the Stars and make money off of that. And in fact, the NCAA made an exception to that. So she did allude to this kind of philosophy, but didn't absolutely spell it out then the way that she did, obviously, this week. Right. And that seems to be the purpose of the column. Like she, I I mean, I'm not suggesting that she was addressing my column, but there are words in her column that seem to say, you know, there are some who say we didn't um, address the root issue, which is money, which is basically what my column was. Like if you're going to form a commission on college basketball um, in light of an FBI investigation uncovering all of these uh, NCAA violations, you've got to address what what the the. FBI investigation uncovered, which is money. It, it's one person giving money in violation of NCAA rules and, you know, uh, at least according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York in violation of federal law, one person giving another person money to secure a prospect in some form. That's what the FBI investigation um, has uncovered. It's all money related. And and to make all of these formal recommendations, but then not make a, re- a formal recommendation about amateurism, you're just wasting your time. You're wasting our time. You're not actually fixing anything. And so it seems like she wanted to, with this column, make it crystal clear. I am in favor of student athletes profiting off of their name and likeness. But we have to wait for the courts and we uh, to set legal parameters for us. And I guess I, I would bottom line it this way. Or, or it, 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 to me, it's pretty simple. If you allow student athletes to profit off of their name and likeness, which I, I think every sensible person is for at this point, but set boundaries, you do nothing to clean up the sport because all that will do is, yeah, people will be getting money legally and then also illegally. I mean, anytime you set a limit, create a ceiling um, that 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 obstructs a free market, you create a black market. That's what we have right now, a black market, because right now student athletes can get stuff. You know, they can get a cost of attendance stipend. They can, you know, they get a scholarship. They get, um, you know, a room. There's all sorts of things that student athletes actually get. But there are people out there willing to give them more, and you say they can't take it. Well, that's how you get the black market. That's how you get the federal investigation. And so this is just – this will just raise that ceiling, but it won't, it won't eliminate the black market. It's why I've always been in favor of – I don't want to say always, but 
since I've gotten older and hopefully wiser and started discussing and writing about this issue um, pretty regularly, um, I've been of the belief that you have to allow every student athlete, men, women, volleyball players, football players, basketball players, I don't care, allow them to, to accept whatever someone is willing to give them. That is the only way to eliminate the black market. If anything short of that doesn't clean up the sport, because let's just say, for instance, they say student athletes can um, profit off their name and likeness, um, f- you know, via uh, uh, corporations that actually want to put them in a commercial or actually want to put them on a billboard or actually want to have them for an autograph signing. Well, that doesn't do anything to stop the booster from paying a kid over here to go be a running back or a point guard. Um, if you say, okay, they can they can take money in whatever form, as long as it's in, in a legal way, but um, no more than $50,000 per year. Well, that's not going to stop Nike from giving Marvin Bam- Bagley's family a million dollars to ensure that he goes to a Nike school. I- unless you make it without parameters, then you don't clean up the black market, and it seems like they are going to uh, eventually get to a point where, yeah, they allow student athletes to profit off their name and likeness, but there's going to be boundaries. And if you if you have boundaries, you're not really fixing the sport. Well, there's Paris. This is where we're headed. Um, I th- this is just the way the NCAA operates. It doesn't ever make wholesale changes, and I think we're going to have parameters. I think that is a virtual certainty here at some point. The, you know, what was interesting is when we had our podcast and the columns and all the reaction to what. Condoleezza Rice said and what the commission put forth to the NCAA, um, you know, there was some some criticism I think went a little too far, and I thought we were, we tried to be as balanced and, and logical and pragmatic with, uh, with our responses afterward. But I think you can't deny that there was probably conversations that were held inside, uh, you know, those – wherever they had those damn conversations four or five times uh, throughout the season. And they probably had some real um, worthwhile uh, debates over um, college athletes being able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. But they simply didn't opted not to include um, a lot of those discussion points or any sort of recommendations or uh, the benefits or drawbacks as they saw um, any of those things in the report. And since then, we've not only seen Condoleezza Rice, we've also seen David Robinson mention that players should be able to benefit off their name, image, and likeness. So I think we are headed toward that, barring some sort of uh, court ruling that keeps the NCAA running the way that it's been for so long and, and continues to bring on um, just mounds and mounds of criticism um, but I don't think it's going to head that way. And when they do make changes, the NCAA and Mark Emmert will be uh, quite proud of itself for allowing some sort of way for um, athletes to be able to profit off themselves, but there are going to be parameters, and the, the issues will still exist there. I happen to think they will exist, but they will reduce to a certain degree here because once you allow players to actually start making certain kinds of money i don't you know if there's going to be a cap on it or in what ways you know it's going to be a whole new set of problems for us to write and talk about there's no doubt about it um but your greater point is is on the money i just i think that is where we are headed i don't know if that'll be four months from now or four years from now i think we will get to a point where the ncaa acknowledges that there should be um, some room for players to be able to do this aside from just signing with an agent and all that. We're talking about, you know, actually being able to make 
thousands upon thousands of dollars while you're still in college. Um, but there's not going. It's not going to just let you know. They're not going to break down the doors entirely. It's just not the way the internet really does things. Right. And and so this is just. We are headed toward this at some point, no matter what, and it will present a different stage of problems. But it will all also undeniably uh, at least uh, symbolize some actual growth. It's just going to take the NCAA decades to get to where we want it to be. Right. I do think they will get further than they are sooner rather than later. But it's just like the agent stuff. They're going to baby step it and then stop short, which fixes nothing. Like they make a big to do about. Hey, we're going to allow student athletes to actually have converse discussions with agents. Bring it above board. Okay. Well, how's that going to prevent? How's that going to end the age? The problem, to the extent that there's a problem with agents and amateur student athletes, the problem is they're cheating to get them. Like they're they're paying them before they're they're professionals. They're paying them while they're still, according to the NCAA, amateurs. Well, how does allowing student athletes to talk to agents and have relationships with agents prevent agents from cheating. I mean, the, the same agents that are willing to push money under the table now to a summer league coach, to a, uh, I mean, to a grassroots basketball coach, to a high school coach, to a, um, an uncle, a dad, a mom, whomever, the same ones that are doing that now are going to do it then. Like, so like allowing student athletes to meet with agents doesn't solve the agent problem. And this is the same thing. Uh, allowing student athletes to profit off their name and likeness with a cap of some sort doesn't eliminate um, your black market. It'll still be there, and um, and we'll still be talking about the same things. Like they, they will think that they're fixing the sport, but they're not actually solving anything completely. Um, the agents who will cheat are still going to be cheating, and the black market that exists now is still going to exist even when they go where they say they intend to go as long as they do set parameters. If they set parameters, they're not solving anything. Let's move on. I sound like Brian Gumbel when I do that <laughs> on HBO. Real let's, move on. Let's, let's move on. Um, Tyrese Maxey committed yesterday to the University of Kentucky. You're not going to believe this. John Perry got another five-star recruit uh, yesterday. He became the third class of 2019 prospect to commit to the Wildcats. They've now got Tyrese Maxey. He's ranked 13th in the class of 2019. Ashton Hagens, who is 10th in the class of 2019, but is reportedly going to reclassify and actually play for Kentucky uh, this upcoming season. And then DJ Jeffries, who lives uh, just a few minutes away from me, uh, he is number 31. He's a fellow Mississippian. He's ranked 31st in the class of 2019. You wrote about Tyrese Maxey. Um, A, what kind of player is he? B, even though he denies that he's going to reclassify, is there still a chance that he reclassifies? I guess there's still a small chance. Um, when it comes to the reclassification stuff, I'm not – I do not have my finger on the – I'm not going to BS on the podcast. I don't have my finger on the pulse of what some kids will do and won't do. So I hit up our good buddy Jeff Borzello. He says he doesn't think that he will. And if you really look at the way that Kentucky's roster is assembled going into next season and what they have potentially coming down the pike for the year after that – it seems to benefit Maxi overall if he were to stay in 2019 because 
you wouldn't have as much of a clog. And the point I made in the quick uh, headline we had up that, that went up on, on Wednesday with Maxie was, you know, Kentucky, whether it was by design or by accident, over the past two seasons it had assembled its roster to the point where it had like six guys between 6'8 and 6'10 just clogging up the roster. And they had a lot of talent and they were a good team, but I think it was more problematic than it was beneficial. And... You could have that kind of situation if, you know, Ashton Hagens were to reclassify or Tyrese Maxey were to reclassify in the backcourt there when you've already got Quade Green coming back and you've got some really good talent coming in. Emmanuel quickly, a very talented point guard overall. So I would think that he's going to stay in 2019. Um, and I think it would benefit Kentucky if he stayed in 2019 because he could step in and I think that he'd be a really big, impactful player. He does not really have, I don't think he's got a, um, a close parallel in terms of a player at Cal over the past five, six years because he's not a point guard. He is a combo. He's not really a true point guard. Very good score. Uh, plays well on and off the ball. He can shoot from deep, which is obviously something Kentucky has struggled with uh, frequently in recent years. He's a really good three-point shooter. Uh, he's athletic. He's got a good body already. Like His body is ready to play at the college level, um, and he's a willing distributor. So he's not like you know Malik Monk and he's not like um De'Aaron Fox he's not like Shea Gilgis Alexander he's not even like Tyler Ulis he's just a well-bodied capable offensive player with some good flash to his game uh who's like not as good of a shooter as I'm trying to think like he's not as good of a scorer as Devin Booker but he's definitely much more effective with the ball than De'Aaron Fox was um outside of De'Aaron Fox's amazing speed and uh and floor vision overall so he's it's a benefit for Kentucky that he's joining I would think he'll stay in 2019 and right now UK does have the number one class in the 2019 they uh they leapfrogged UCLA with this commitment we'll see if they stay there they're number two in 2018 those rankings I think have been set in stone um uh, barring I guess Maxie joining joining the class of 2018, but I don't even think that would get Kentucky over Duke's rankings at this point. So it looks like Kentucky is yet again on pace for another top two class. But here, uh, the big takeaway is there is more diversity among the commitments they're getting, and Calipari has good balance between the roster that's returning and the guys that are coming in, whereas opposed to in recent years, I thought that although he was recruiting like guards, don't get me wrong, there was just such an abundance of big men that still needed to be developed that I think it, it just stymied Kentucky's growth a little bit. Uh, my understanding, and I'm not 100% sure this is accurate, but there are some, um, there may be some rules in place about playing grassroots basketball. If you announce, like before, you know, that, that you're done, that you're reclassifying, I, I, I think I read that somewhere. And so there is a motive to be dishonest if if you want to play through you know through july mm-hmm. and you know there and, and you do plan on reclassifying there is a motive to to being misleading um uh, i believe it's why ashton hagens i don't think has formally announced that he is going to to reclassify um but i will say maxi's comments seemed pretty genuine uh at at surface level i believe his explanation was essentially i just want to be in high school like i have friends you know i uh I, I just I want to do another year of high school like a normal student. And if that's the case, um, that certainly uh, make makes sense to me. Um, if you're somebody following the James Wiseman recruitment, he's the number one player in the class of 2019. What happened yesterday was significant for Kentucky because Wiseman has um, uh, previously said that he wants to play college basketball with two players specifically. 
Ashton Hagens and, and Tyrese Maxey. And now they're both headed to Kentucky, which seems to suggest that uh, that UK might be on its way to landing uh, just a monster class that will be headlined by the number one prospect in the class of 2019. Meantime, uh, Arizona got a commitment uh, over the weekend uh, from a young man who had decommitted them after the ESPN story about Sean Miller allegedly discussing a pay-for-play scheme uh, about DeAndre Ayton uh, was reported. His name's Brandon Williams. He's a four-star kid, like top 30 player, uh, or right around there. And what's what's significant and, and what moved me to write about it um, earlier in the week is that there was a time right after that ESPN story published and Sharif O'Neal decommits Brandon Williams decommits. Uh, they had already lost Javon Quinterly, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so Sean Miller's getting ready to lose all five starters from a Pac-12, uh, uh, from a, a, a team that won the Pac-12 regular season title and tournament. And he's got no recruiting class. I mean, literally nobody on the way. And it looked like they could be really, really bad. And yet um, they've now secured a couple of top 100 kids they got two grad transfers it's a top 25 recruiting class and um and and it that suggests that that arizona is, is maybe going to be um a factor near the top of the pac-12 again going to be headed back to the ncaa tournament and it's a it's a pretty remarkable turnaround given that in early march we didn't know if sean miller was going to a still have his job but even if he did have his job it looked like he was going to have his job, but a terrible roster that he would not be able to recruit under these circumstances. And while he hasn't gone out and put together a typical Arizona class, um, probably because book's not involved anymore, uh, they have uh, they have put together a top 25 class that's going to make them respectable, it looks like. This is – honestly, it, it speaks to some of Sean Miller's recruiting ability, but it's also the power of the and the lure of the Arizona job. I mean, that you can go through this and still salvage a solid class overall. Um, if we want to put it into context, Miller was bringing in um, – top three, top five classes annually, and now, you know, it takes a bit of a hit, you know, undeniably, as expected, uh, unquestionably, but he has done, I mean, as we sit here, Parrish, in the middle of May, Miller has come out of this as well as you possibly could have expected from him, with the exception of the embarrassing loss in the NCAA tournament. I mean, that's really it. Otherwise, they win the Pac-12 tournament in dominating fashion. Aiton never gets off the floor. Miller maintains his job. You lose some recruits, which was obviously to be expected when it, when it came to that. You were able to get one of them back, and you still keep yourself competitive on the recruiting trail, which, again, is the power of that Arizona logo and that program. When you're that good, this is why certain jobs are viewed certain ways. If Sean Miller was coaching let's just say at Colorado and the same stuff had been happening, but you want to say Colorado had been a top 10 team for the previous, you know, four to six years or whatever, Colorado wouldn't, he would not be salvaging this. It just would not be the same. Uh, there, there's, there are reasons why certain jobs are so coveted and so powerful because for decades they've built themselves up to be like that. And when you have the combination of a job and a certain coach, you can get this kind of, uh, frankly, this kind of power in college basketball recruiting. And so what Miller has been able to do is impressive. It is undeniably impressive. I know that there are plenty of people that think he should not even have that job at this point. But that's 
honestly, that's beside the point at this at this stage. The the people at Arizona who are in charge of this stuff clearly trust and believe in Sean Miller, and from his perspective, he has done everything behind the scenes and in front of them to ensure Arizona is best positioned going forward. I still think the team's going to take a big step back next season, undeniably. But this is uh, this is patching up some holes in the boat, and he is doing pretty well for himself overall. This is not where anyone thought he would be uh, two and a half months ago. Not at all. And uh, one thing. So when I wrote the column, um, obviously part of this story is that, that ESPN story uh, that was – and by Mark Schleybaugh uh, that alleged that Sean Miller was caught on a wiretap discussing a pay-for-play scheme involving DeAndre Ayton with Christian Dawkins. And Sean Miller has uh, uh, insisted that's untrue, totally denied it. And I think at this point it is reasonable to to say that uh, that story has been refuted, that, that Sean Miller is – Yes, uh, on a wiretap talking to Christian Dawkins, but if we ever hear that wiretap or find out the actual, like, uh, get a transcript of it, I I think what we're going to find out is that he wasn't on a wiretap discussing a pay-for-play scheme with DeAndre Ayton, uh, uh, about DeAndre Ayton, that uh, who knows what he was talking about with Christian Dawkins, you know, maybe one day we'll see, but it's it's fairly accepted in basketball circles now that the ESPN story that published late on that Friday night uh, was just wrong. And, um, and, and, and so when I wrote about this, the way I described it, because you got, that's part of the story. You've got to include it was, um, that the ESPN story from a reputable, a reporter. And there's been a lot of pushback from Arizona fans like Mark Schleyball not a reputable reporter. And, um, both of these things can be true. He is a reputable reporter who seems to have screwed up. He screwed that story up. And listen, that, that'll, that'll take a, that's a big hit. And I, 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 his reputation has been damaged because of that. And I don't say this, you know, to, to gloat. I'm just speaking matter of fact. I don't even, I wouldn't gloat. Uh, Mark's a friend of mine. He and I are similar ages. We've had, um, you know, we've known each other for a long, long time. We've worked, um, you know, on, on the same stories often. Um, He's he's a friend of mine. I, I hate seeing him go through that because I, I can't you know, I've I don't want to say I've never been wrong about something, but I've never been wrong about something that big. And in the age of social media being what it is like, you know, that can uh, that can take you to a bad spot, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but it, it does appear that he messed that story up. I acknowledge that. I'm not trying to pretend otherwise. But the reason that story carried so much weight wasn't just that it was an ESPN story. The reason that story carried so much weight in that moment where people thought by the time we woke up on Saturday morning that Sean Miller's days in Arizona were numbered, the reason that story carried so much weight, the reason people believed it initially, at least, was because Mark Schleybar was the reporter who did it. You know, it wasn't some no-name person from some small-time whatever. It was a reputable reporter from the worldwide leader. And so I don't apologize for using that word. He is a reputable reporter. He's a damn good reporter um, who's done a lot of big and and good stories. Um, But, yeah, it does seem that he messed that up. And his reputation has taken a hit, but it doesn't mean that he's not a reputable reporter. He, he, you might not think of well of him now if you're an Arizona fan or Sean Miller, and I completely understand why. But you know, when when that story hit, you know, if that story on a Friday night 
comes from somebody I've never heard of at a lesser media outlet, I might not even blink. But it became the story in sports because it was Mark Schleyball from ESPN reporting it. And so I think it's it's fair to call him a reputable reporter uh, in that context. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, Kenny Johnson, who was the associate head coach at Louisville for Rick Pitino, uh, has a new job. He's going to be an assistant coach, I believe associate head coach also, at, at LaSalle, where he's working for first-year head coach Ashley Howard, who, of course, has been on staff at Villanova. I wrote about this earlier in the week. And uh, ultimately, it's just a, you know an, an Atlanta 10 school hiring an assistant coach. But the reason it is an actual headline is because Kenny Johnson has become the first person to lose his job because of the FBI investigation uh, to be rehired at a at another Division One university. And so the question becomes, um, would you hire him? If Ashley Howard called you and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, what would you do? What would you have told him, Matt? I would have told him, I understand why you want to hire Kenny Johnson. Um, he has a lot of really good connections and can get you players. There's no doubt about that. Um, but this is your first head coaching job, and – LaSalle is a tough place to win, and that might be related to why you want to hire Kenny Johnson, but it might be better if you can simply pick someone else so so soon after all of this FBI stuff, even if, Parrish, as your story indicates, there is a letter from Kenny Johnson's lawyer, and he has not been, he obviously has not been named explicitly in the FBI's findings, um, and could be entirely innocent. It is, it is a tough sell, and it is why. I mean, between what you've heard and what have I've heard, what I've heard, um, a Big Ten school, a Pac-12 school, an American Athletic Conference school, and a Summit League school. Those are at least four. There could be more. All, all just you know, knocked on the door here and said, you know, I'm thinking about hiring Kenny Johnson. Can we do it? And the people above the head coaches there at those schools. They all said no, um, and it's understandable why they said no. And now Ashley Howard brings him in, and LaSalle is probably going to start getting some players because Kenny Johnson in particular is very well connected uh, in Washington, D.C. And if you really want to know how a lot of this works is perhaps Kenny Johnson's entirely innocent. That Maybe that's the case, right? Um, and this goes on to be the start of an amazing thing for Ashley Howard's head coaching career and never comes back to, to, to bite him or whatsoever. That's great. But the reason why you do this is there are probably a lot of people that are really tight with Kenny Johnson, that believe in his character, stand up for him, they're his guy forever. Those people are also connected to certain recruiting circles. And because Ashley Howard took a chance on Kenny Johnson, they are f never going to forget that. And so whether it's a player that goes to a uh, you know a major seven-type conference and kind of flames out and wants to transfer, oh, well, guess what? Why don't you go play for my guy, Ashley, at LaSalle? Get, you, get yourself some minutes. They'll hook him up that way. Or if you've got that three-star level recruit, maybe even occasionally every blue moon, a four-star every once in a while who just puts LaSalle on a final list of four or five schools or a really good three-star recruit who winds up picking LaSalle, that's how this will pay off. But it is, a, it is a risk analysis here because the second – Kenny Johnson, if it ever happens, is associated with anything negative while he's on your staff, 
this comes back on you tenfold, and it can be really problematic for your career. Um, but I also want to add one more piece of, I guess, perspective to this whole thing here. Because I was talking with uh, another coach who knows Ashley really, really well. Um, because there are a number of people Ashley talked to about joining his staff, some more seriously than others. And in fact, I'm not going to give up the name, but there was another name that, that was associated with you know potentially joining a staff here. And it also would have raised some eyebrows, in my opinion. But what this coach told me was, listen, this is Ashley's first head coaching job. And there are a lot of people, anytime you get a head coaching job, there are, there are people that have helped you get to that point. And it can be dozens of people. And so um, in many cases, you will give those people the time of day to just inquire about joining your staff or helping you in other kinds of ways. And um, I think that is some of what Ashley Howard was going through with this particular thing. But make no mistake about it. This is, this is explicitly, you know, Kenny Johnson has a really good reputation. He used to work on the grassroots circuit. He has a lot of connections. But... It uh, it can't be denied. He was at Louisville, and the powers that be at Louisville fired him. Um, they fired him, and they fired Jordan Fair, both of whom were assistants under Rick Pitino. David Padgett was not fired. He was kept on and promoted to interim head coach. And if uh, I have to think that the people that stepped in at Louisville's administration and kind of took over after um, Pitino and Tom Jurich, the former athletic director, were booted, if they thought that David Padgett was also uh, liable or, or you know his involvement was, was certainly suspect, he would have gone as well, but he wasn't. But Fair and Kenny Johnson both were, and that is now what, Ashley Howard brings to him, and the very fact we're even talking about this on a podcast. Listen, maybe it turns out okay, but this is what this is what you do you, when it when it, when you hire him. You take on this initial wave of skepticism, and then the season will come. By the way, this will happen again, and and we'll just have to wait and see. Kenny Johnson probably maintains his innocence as he should if he if he is or or if there is some wiggle room legally. I don't know. I'm not saying that I think he's necessarily guilty or not, but this is obviously a move that has. Serious risk behind it. I'm a little fascinated by it, and I'm not surprised to learn that there were a number of other coaches that wanted to do the exact same thing, and their presidents or athletic directors did not allow him to do them to do that because of the situation we're talking about right now. I talked to one coach who was trying to hire Kenny, and his president just nixed, just said, "We're not doing this." And I think you and I are on the same page here. Um, I've got nothing against Kenny Johnson, and if he's never done anything wrong. It sucks that his career and, by extension, life has been turned upside down. Um, but there's just no way that I would get involved in this uh, with so much unknown. Um, I can maybe understand, and I'm not sure how tight Ashley and Kenny are, but like, like if that's been my lifelong friend, like if I've known this guy for 20 years and like we're brothers and, and I'm in an opportunity where I can help him and his family – then maybe it's, you know what, I, I'm going to do this for you. But if it's just about hiring somebody to fill a job, I just don't get involved in this because you're exactly right. Not everybody at Louisville got fired. You know, they, they, they fired the people they thought did something wrong. It started with Rick Pitino and with Jordan Fair, but Kenny Johnson was a part of that as well. And while I am told that Kenny not only has a letter from the NCAA saying that he's never – you know, been charged with a level one or level two violation, which, by the way, means literally nothing uh, as it relates to what he was allegedly fired for at Louisville because the NCAA hasn't even looked into that yet. 
so he wouldn't be charged with a level one or level two violation because of stuff that actually got him fired at Louisville. So that letter means nothing. But I'm told he also has a letter from his attorney, and his attorney has claims to have spoken to the person in charge of the FBI investigation, and that person has told Kenny's attorney that Kenny is considered a witness to their case and nothing more. In other words, he has not been charged with a crime, and they do not expect to charge him with a crime, which is fine, but that doesn't mean that you didn't commit NCAA violations. Mm-hmm. So these are these are two very different things. And so I, I would just be worried of when these things start going to trial or when more information comes out, is he going to be on a wiretap saying something that is clearly going to create an issue for me? Is he going to – are, are the Adidas executives, when they eventually cut deals, are they going to you know, put him in on the deal to get Brian Bowen to go to Louisville? Like I, you just don't know. And even if Kenny denies whatever, I mean, let's not be naive here. Uh, innocent till proven guilty and all that. But former grassroots coach, now the associate head coach at Louisville, making five hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Now there's now the, the 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 FBI believes that Louisville that that Adidas wasn't out there just working without the knowledge of the Louisville staff. The FBI believes the Louisville staff was involved in getting Brian Bowen to go to, to Louisville in exchange for a $100,000 payment. So the FBI believes that Louisville staff was involved on some level, and the associate head coach with a grassroots background that had nothing to do with it? Does that sound believable to you? Right. It, it's it's a tough sell. I mean, it's a tough sell. Without a doubt. I, and this is... Just a very important distinction you made there, just in terms of, you know, you might not be charged. You might, from a legal perspective, you know, if you if you were caught up in a in a, in a bad situation, you could still dodge any sort of um, punishment from the federal government. But that doesn't mean you'll dodge uh, having done something wrong in the eyes of the NCAA, which will eventually get to Louisville and will eventually adjudicate that case. And it could just bring more problems. Maybe it won't, you know, you know, Ashley Howard's not a dumb human being here. So I, I, I fully expect and believe that he had some real serious conversations with Kenny Johnson, uh, about all of this stuff. And, and whatever Kenny told him was enough to, uh, to convince Ashley that, that this is worth it overall. Um, but that that remains to be seen. It, you know, it, it's fair to be skeptical of this kind of hire, particularly with the knowledge that, and it's understandable of the hire that there were other schools that wanted to do this were not allowed. LaSalle, which is um, certainly just, it, it's a program that it just it's it's not a top hundred program. It's not even a top. 150 program probably when it, when you look at the the budget issues it faces annually um, we'll see what what happens here but uh, it's it's fascinating and I can't even believe we're talking about a LaSalle assistant hire <laughs> but this is what an FBI investigation will do for your sport when it has this kind of reach and it can just affect it in these kinds of ways here and I don't know if you know who else that that has been implicated by this or may still 
will wind up getting another job. Kenny Johnson may be a, a fraternity of one in this instance. We'll wait and see. Um, but, yeah, certainly an unexpected headline that, at least for me this week, Parrish, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking um, that Kenny, who has been able to you know, help build Louisville up to be um, a damp good program under Patino, um, I wasn't expecting him to be able to, to land on a bench. But uh, here we are. Never underestimate just what can happen in college basketball. Right. I, I, to be clear, um, I believe that Ashley believes Kenny. Like, I don't doubt that at all. I just would be worried about, you know, the FBI probably thinks something different. Again, maybe not commit a federal crime, but certainly the FBI believes he was on a staff that was very aware that Brian Bowen's family was going to be compensated to get Brian Bowen to go to Louisville. That is the allegation. And so, like, I I would just fear this day. It's February next season. I'm in my first year as a head coach. And some FBI, some documents are released or somebody's in a trial, however it works, however the information gets out. And there's my associate head coach that I just hired last May being implicated in a pay-for-play scheme. And now I've got Philadelphia media Mm -hmm. showing up to my game to ask me, so uh, tell me again why you hired this guy? You knew he got fired at Louisville. You knew what the Louisville staff was accused of. And you hired him, and now here he is. This is it. And then, and then, probably for the first time since today, you and I are talking about LaSalle basketball in this way. Um, it just seems un- unnecessary, unless you want and and risky. Unless again, you're just trying to do a guy solid because you you believe in him. Um, but I. It's not something I think I would do if I were a head coach. It's it's always impossible to say what you would do if you were somebody else because you're not them and you're not in their shoes. But it seems like uh, a, a little bit of a risky move, uh, you know, when you've just been a Division One head coach now for for a few months. But uh, but hopefully it works out well for everybody. I wish ill on no one. You want to get out of here? You got to go cut your yard or something. I got an arborist coming over to check out some trees. <laughs> <laughs> How much does it cost to get a tree cut down these days? Uh, it depends on the size here, but I'm I'm not exactly thrilled with. Uh, I won't get into figures here, but I'm not exactly thrilled with this one. Where I'm debating actually going out and buying a chainsaw and doing one of these things myself, and then just giving the leftover wood to my father who loves who loves his firewood so i you gotta don't know be careful you got to be careful with that chainsaw i know my, exactly i'm not um my so my wife owns a children's boutique and right literally next door it, there's a women's boutique so it's great because you get you get clients for you get customers for both stores anyway the husband of the the woman who owns the women's boutique her husband like just last week damn near cut his arm off with a chainsaw okay you got to not what i need to hear like he had to go have surgery, and like they're they're hoping he gets full use out of his hand again. What? Like like it's serious. I shouldn't be laughing about it. Like this, he's a good dude. Um, like yeah, and he like he's a musician, plays guitar, same thing. Just like come you, on, sings. man. And uh, damn near cut his hand off. So like, be careful if you. I wouldn't advise it. You don't seem like the type that's got a, a lot a, a long history of experience with a chainsaw. I don't. I've got a buddy who does. I might have to uh, to lure him over here, but. Oh gosh, that's terrifying. Yeah, I, I gotta be honest. I'm not exactly. 
I'm not thrilled at the prospect. Like some some guys, just like they love, like oh yeah, I'm gonna get the chainsaw. I'm gonna break out the axe. I'm gonna. And that's just not really. It's not my bag overall. Um, and yeah, they are they are a little terrifying there. So maybe you might just talk me off this whole thing, and I'll just take another hit to the wallet. Have these dudes cut these two trees. So this is this is what you're gonna find out. As a are you now a first time homeowner? I, I am a first time homeowner, this and is it is it's really hitting me hard, Parish, this this spring. Yes. Every month, there's going to be something. Like there's just it just there's going to be something. There's always something. It, it, it you don't you do, you can't anticipate. It's just like, hey, we need to get the, like in the past we've had to because we're coming up on ten years in this house. Like in the past couple of weeks or a couple of months, we've had to get a new dishwasher, a new washing machine, a new our microwave exploded for some reason. We had to get a new microwave. Um, you know, we had to get uh, the interior painted again. Just always something. Like you, you just get hit for eight hundred dollars over and over again, nonstop. It's crazy. Yeah, this is. But also, it's just life. It's just life. But yeah, no, I hear you, man. I got a, I got a list of stuff that's coming down the pike here. It's just, hey, I'm not complaining. Lucky to live this kind of life. But you're right. There, are, there is definitely like my wife's going away next week. It's going to be in my son, and. Uh, you know, we've got a second child on the way here, but our stairs going up the stairs are all hardwood, so we need to put a runner in. So we got to get a runner installed. Someone's coming from Home Depot. I hear you 100%. One thing after another after another. Put up a baby gate yet? Not yet. I'm holding off on that as long as possible. But I got to buy a, I got to buy a bed for my son cuz he's just about ready how to get is, out of the crib. How old is your son? He's two and a half. And he's okay getting up and down the stairs? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, our our little Lou, our youngest, is like he loves to get on the stairs, but like he will one hundred percent fall. So we've got the that's another thing we had to buy a baby gate, yeah. and we and uh, you know because of my wife's taste, like we can't just buy a normal baby gate. It's got to be the best baby gate in the history of the planet. So just one thing after another. Twelve hundred dollar baby gate. Hey, real quick, we should get out of here, but one one quick thing. So I forgot to bring this up on recent podcast because really, what's the where's the opportunity? But um, is your wife? Because I know it's not you, because this is wasn't your name. So, but is your wife beaming with pride that your yes. youngest child's name beat out the royal child Louis by I don't know what a year and a half, two years, or whatever it is? Yes, she was very excited when the name was announced. Not only because of, of the way it's spelled, but because of the way it's pronounced. Because you can imagine, everyone thought an- it was Louis with this royal child, just like I thought your child was Louis. Dude, Kelly and I got not into it. But I, we have this sort of pattern where, and where we discuss something, and I say, "Well, if you do it this way, this is going to happen," and she'll say, "No, no, 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 no," and uh, it, like it could be about anything. It could be about her store. I say, "Well, if you deal with this person, you know this person is going to like this. You're going to look up in six months, and you're going to be complaining about this or that or whatever." She's like, "No, no, no, it won't be like that." Then six months later, she's complaining about the exact thing I said she was going to complain about. And so when we got on the discussion of names, the way we do names with our children, it's always been – because some people like sit down and they go, hey, let's think of names. I'm like, let's just skip that. You come up with names, and I have veto power. So you come up with names, and I just just tell you if I hate it. And if I hate it, we scrap it. And if I don't, then it's cool. So she comes up with names, and she comes up with uh, Louie. For our youngest. And I said, uh, how are you going to spell it? She said, L-O-U-I-S. I said, okay, you realize that we're in, we live in North Mississippi. 
people are going to call him Lewis. Like when he goes to – if he's playing high school baseball someday, the PA, uh, the public address announcer is going to say, and, uh, and, and, and now on the mound, uh, number 14 – Lewis Parrish, you're okay with that because that is what's going to happen. When he's in kindergarten and they're calling roll, they're going to say, Lewis Parrish, are you okay with that? She said, no, they won't. I said, yes, they will. It's going to be Lewis. No, it's Louie. Everybody understands it's Louie. No, that is not something everybody understands. And she, of course, like refuses to acknowledge that I'm 100% right about this. And then when we have the baby and his name is written, the first probably three times, four or five times that somebody – verbalized his name in my presence without one of us first explaining that his name is Louis called him Lewis. He's called, everybody calls him Lewis. And so she was <laughs> thrilled with the Royal baby. Um, not only being L O U I S, but they are pronounced because that's the way you would pronounce it in, in England. Uh, it being Louis. Cause now he has a peer. I hope they grow up to be a best friend or something. <laughs> it might actually wind up benefiting, uh, you guys and and rounding out her argument because everyone's going to think that that spelling will be Louis because the name's going to go global. So you might your son might be okay by the time he uh, he steps onto the pitcher's mound. Although you know Louis Paris Louis Louis sounds like a second baseman, not a pitcher. Let's be real here. I call him Lou. Lou, yeah. I I call him Lou. That's the way I refer to him. He's um he's wild. I, the, my plans for my kids. I want Louis. I want Louis to friends with the royal baby Louis, and I want. My four-year-old Oliver to date Northwest. Okay, that's that's what I'm after. That's what I'm. We're going to move to Calabasas to see if we can set this up. All right, let's wrap this up here. Shouts, to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. and Teagle, the legend. Remember, subscribe to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done that yet, shame on you. Please go do it now. Rate it favorably. Five stars with nice comments. That's all I ask. We will talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.